you, know, you ever seen the SB Award TV? That's what, I felt like I was a fly on the wall at the ESPYs. They are some of the most athletic human beings on the planet. The most beautiful people on the planet. Every I think every girl was there was at least six foot and a model. Uh, every guy I met either played college basketball, is in college, or plays professional basketball in Europe, or is currently on the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, and you know, I'm, and I'm five foot six, and uh, it was very painful because when you're talking to seven footers, the first thing you have to feel is not, not a bond. You feel pain in your neck. <laughs> You know, so I only talked to them for 30 seconds each because that's all my neck could take all night. <laughs> what was really special was Isaiah and Shay, just our friendship over the years, and seeing them unite as a man and a wife, a husband and wife has been phenomenal. So we applaud you. And uh, Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah leaves for, uh, for Europe uh, tonight. He flies out to uh, be part of his professional basketball team in Germany. So he'll be leaving uh, tonight. So wish you the best, and hopefully see you next summer. We love you. You have our hearts. Um, I'm doing a series called about, it's called It's Personal. Because when we, we have this concept about God and salvation, we have to understand one thing about God. He initiated first. Now think about your wife, think about your girlfriend who's here, your boyfriend who's here, or maybe she's back home, or whoever you're dating. The moment you felt that they initiated with you was a good feeling. When, when, when I met Karen, I was the initiator, okay, slash stalker, but I was the initiator, <laughs> and I would initiate with her, engage her, call her on the home line, because there wasn't any cell phones back then. I, and I would initiate with her, and I would try to have a conversation with her. And I'm sure she felt flattered by the initiation. Because salvation begins with God, and God makes the first move towards humanity. And I, I, I give you that illustration because when you're the recipient, when someone initiates something incredible with you, it feels good, and it feels awesome. And so, one part about being, when I hear people talk about marriage... <clears throat> is they talk about being committed to their marriage. I really don't want Karen to be committed to the marriage. I want Karen to be committed to me. And I want to be committed to her. Not to this category called marriage. We're, we're just knuckling it through. Just I'm committed to my marriage, but I'm incredibly unhappy. I want her to want to be with me. And be in love with me. Not just the concept of marriage. I'm sure you've seen parents who will not divorce, or people you know will not divorce, but there is an eternal struggle there, and there's an unhappiness there, because they're committed to the marriage, but yet they've lost the personal relationship with each other. I'm sure we've seen that. Um, because marriage is categorical. Me is, is personal. And, and most of us didn't fall in love with marriage. We fell in love with our husband or wives who are sitting next to us, or our boyfriend or our girlfriend. And there are many powerful and, you know, powerful categorical, uh, rational arguments in opposition to embracing the concept of being in a relationship with Jesus as your Savior. Or surrendering your life. Or surrendering your finances. Or surrendering your relationships. Adults don't usually embrace Jesus because they resolved all 
those arguments. Adults embrace Jesus when somehow the discussion moves from, from out of the realm of categorical to personal. Then it gets, it gets real. And that's not to say that those objections can't be discussed or, or resolved. You know, there books have been written about every doubt that you have. It's out there. Just Google it. But that's not necessarily going to get you from categorical to relational. Christianity is about relationships. The one thing I love about Christianity is, is I get to have on my own, I get to initiate as many relationships as I want. And it's awesome because God initiates with me, I can initiate with others. You can't reason your way into Christianity, you can't read your way into Christianity. You can't think your way into Christianity. If a person overcomes their objections to marriage, does that make them married? No. Got to find someone to fall in love with. I found it. Marriage is actually healthy, the studies show. That's not necessarily going to say I'm married. I got to find someone. You have to find someone to fall in love with you. That means you have to be kind and gentle and loving. You've got to listen to women's thoughts. And they're all connected. And they're intertwining. And it's like, it's, like, it's like on steroids in there. And the guys, it's like empty space. There's nothing in there. We drift off. And you wonder where we're at. And, you, and, you're, and, you're, and women are convinced we're thinking of something profound. We are not. We are not thinking of anything profound. We're simple. If you worked through all your objections to Jesus, you still wouldn't be his follower. If he said he's, yeah, he's the right one, it's not him, it's not Jesus is the, the way to heaven, it still doesn't make you a follower, even though you, you've, you've come to that conclusion. But you can get married with questions about marriage. You can still get married to someone, even though you don't know everything about marriage. You can still do it. And you can still become a follower of Jesus even though you have questions about Jesus and God and how did the earth begin and what, how did this all start? What's the storyline? A garden? A snake? That's weird. A tree? What? You know, it can be difficult to understand some things, but you still can be in a relationship. So you shouldn't be surprised to hear that the, the statement that I'm going to make is that Jesus is intensely personal. So the question is, how did this whole thing start? Why are we here? Well, we're here for... Here's a scripture to, to help us with that, if, if it's on. It's personal. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God took it personally and sent Himself down. I'm going to show you a video that kind of explains this story to us. Okay? There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be. Except, there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But, in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that, if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. 
And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost, and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope, because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just like hanging there until the next key moment in the story. When God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world is going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there will be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here, now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy, except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. 
And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Hey, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to trace the key themes from its beginning all the way through to the end. We also make videos that walk through the literary structure of every book of the Bible and how it relates to the whole. Here's something you didn't know. John and I were roommates in college and we lived in the basement of a dirty old house. We're a nonprofit, and we'd love to keep these videos free for everyone. But we need your help. You can go to jointhebibleproject.com and you can get full res versions of these videos. You can download the study guide. It's all for free. Jointhebibleproject.com. Excellent. I, I put that in there at the end because I, I, I support them. I, I give them monthly money because uh, it's great for your kids. You can put it on a little devotional for them. It explains a lot. It, it explains the book of Leviticus. I, I can't even explain the book of Leviticus. I mean, it, it did it. I'm like, that's what it means? I've been a Christian twin. That's what it meant? I mean, Marty probably knows, but I had no clue. I show that video because I want you to know how personal it is for God. It's personal for you. That's His devotion. And you realize we can't all be right about what God's like. But hopefully that video helps. Because man's initial approach to God was, how do I harness His power to grow my crops? How do I harness God's power to ward off evil spirits, to protect my children? And that's how superstition started. That's how idols started. They were trying to figure out how to harness God's power for their own benefit. Much like today, the question is, how do I get God to bless me, protect me, and not punish me? Perhaps it's the me-ism of religion that is an obstacle to you. Perhaps it is the meism of religion that has left you disappointed with God whenever you decided to search for God or look for God. It's the meism that turns you off. He didn't do that. He didn't do what you want, what you thought he should do. So now you're not so sure anymore. I asked God for this, he didn't give me that. God had to begin somewhere and to get the world's attention, that video kind of encapsulate what the message is. He did something very, very personal that the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims all agree on. Even the Muslims agree that Jesus will come back and judge the world. Even they believe that. The Muslims believe that Mary gave birth to Jesus incarnate, meaning God impregnated her. Even they believe that. God revealed Himself to man, an ordinary man. Not a group, not a nation, but a person. And that, it was because it's personal. Then He told them to move away from the area. This man is called Abraham. In other words, God says, I'm starting over. I'm going to begin with you. And He tells Abraham this. 
The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. He gives him three promises. One, you'll be a great nation. Two, your name will be great. And three, all people will be blessed through you. You know, during that time, we look back at Abraham going, everyone knows Abraham and Christianity. When that was going on, there were guys like the king of Bela, uh, Eshkol, Keldolomar, king of Eden. Those guys were the famous guys. Abraham was a nobody. But now he's a somebody because God made it personal. Because this is all personal for every one of us. Then God initiated this relationship with Abraham and it changed everything. The whole course of humanity. God initiated a relationship with an ordinary man. Whether you're six foot eight or five foot two, God will still initiate. He wants a relationship. This is hundreds of years before Moses. Hundreds of years before the Ten Commandments. There was no law. There was no sense of what pleases God. And God took Abram outside and says, Hey, look at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And obviously we can't. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God initiates this relationship with Abraham based on one concept, faith. You'd think it would be facts, but actually it was faith. But we want so many facts before we decide to have faith. Sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. Abraham did it on faith. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. I don't fully understand everything about God. This morning when I was praying, I was thinking about everything that scientists are discovering. We're like, wow, it's so impressive. God already knew that. I'm going like, what else haven't we found? What other technology is going to come into existence that we're going to dawn ourselves upon? God's infinite wisdom and power is beyond my imagination. I don't know why God allows evil to flourish at times. My only basic thought is that everyone makes their own decisions and if you're going to do evil things, God will allow it for a time. I don't understand why I get so insecure at times. I can't understand that and how God made this human sinful nature of ours. I don't understand why, you know, sometimes people tell me why my wife can't have children. Or why we had to move. Or why we lost a job. Or why my husband's away for, for so long. Sometimes I can't answer those questions. I don't know how all this fits with other religions of the world. Abraham's dad didn't even worship God. I don't know how that figures in. But one thing I do know, it's personal with God and you. And Abraham says, I trust you anyway. And this is what people have been doing for generations. For God so loved the world that He refused to be a category and did something personal. He revealed Himself to somebody and then He revealed Himself through somebody and that was Jesus. 
And God is revealing Himself to you. But it's on God's terms. Trust me, He says. Our, you know what our, obstacle, our obstacles are? Our terms. We make these terms. And they become our obstacles on why we don't connect with God. And here's how Jesus put it for everyone who wants to know something deeper about God. He writes this. He told this to a group of uh, his followers who were committed to him, but they were, they were so concerned about being the best and the greatest that they began to get competitive and began to get prideful and they get, began to puff themselves up. He tells them this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They, they, they figured out, Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to jockey for position. If He's the King, it's good to know the King. I'm going to get in there, and what do I have to do to get good favor with you? He called a little child and had him stand among them. So here are these 12 men who are going to change the world, His followers, and He calls His child over, and He said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When I read that passage, it is so challenging to change what I already know about God and to become a little child. Why did he use the the child analogy? Well, a child is very trusting. A child will believe you're joking lies to them when you joke around. You know, they believe the Santa Claus thing, right? They believe that many things you teach them, they're very teachable and they're very pure and they'll take you at your word. That's what children do. And then they get older and then things start to change. We can miss something incredible because we make it a category. It's not a category. It's personal. Why children? Yeah. Because it's personal. Every, every adult, when they see a child, there's something about a child that just softens your heart. Now I want to encourage you to think about your walk with God and your relationship with God and move it from a category to that it's personal. Because that's what it means to God. Thanks for coming out today. That concludes our service. Have a great, great afternoon. Thanks so much for coming out.